that video reminds me of the idea, the thought that ideas have consequences. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard that or not, uh, but it was a famous book published in 1948 called Ideas Have Consequences. And the author's goal in the book was to help people understand that the ideas we choose to embrace and believe have consequences. In fact, very far-reaching consequences. So it's essential to think about what we believe, to think about what we're being taught. Choosing positive and thoughtful ideas can create a more compassionate society for everyone. But as I was thinking about that, thinking about this book and reading our passage from this morning, I was reminded of a Victor Franke quote. Uh, Victor Franke was a Holocaust survivor, a psychologist, uh, and he wrote this in an interview. He said, I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Madunyuk were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic science, scientists and philosophers. In other words, ideas have consequences. They can bless or they can destroy a lot, not all, but a lot of our behavior doesn't just come out of nowhere. It comes out of a reality that takes root in our minds and brings forth good or evil. I remember once I was reading my daughter's uh, The Hobbit, um, and uh, we were reading the chapter Riddles in the Dark. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in Riddles in the Dark, uh, Bilbo finds himself in an underwater lake and um, he is having a debate of riddles with this creature named Gollum. Now, we were reading the story out loud and I thought, you know what? I bet you my daughter, would she would love to see this scene. Like, I bet you this would be so much fun for her. Uh, she'd probably really enjoy it, maybe bring it to life a little bit. So I'm like, hey, do you want to see what Gollum looks like? As you can tell, he's not a very pleasant creature. Um, so I get the phone out, I turn it on, and immediately I realize that what I believed in my mind was not true as I felt the jaws of life grab onto my side uh, and like pull me really tight. And I was like, oh, oh this is a mistake. Uh, she is not ready for this, even though I thought that she was. I was actually going to show the clip, but I was like, if there's little kids here, I, I don't want to do this to them. But ideas have consequences. What we're being taught impacts us. Let me share one more illustration to prove this. Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite were self-proclaimed philosophers. These were their names uh, in their group. Um, they were self-proclaimed philosophers and teachers, and what they taught was a mixture of Gnosticism and the Bible and some New Age beliefs. And the main thrust of their teaching was that who you are on the inside is really who you are. And that's what needs to be saved. That's what needs to be redeemed, is what's on the inside, your consciousness. They started a little group called Heaven's Gate. They referred to their bodies as vehicles that were really just conscious carriers. Your bodies didn't really mean anything. In fact, your body is really the enemy. It's part of this material world that's yucky and gross. And if you could distance yourself from all the earthly things like 
your body. Uh, if you could distance yourself from those, then you would reach salvation. So any human-like characteristics like family, friends, gender, individuality, jobs, money, possessions, all had to be getting rid of so that you could find true enlightenment. Salvation was their consciousness leaving a broken body and a broken world behind and going off to a better place. Teaching came to a forefront in 1997 when 39 of their adherents, in an attempt to fully distance themselves from this earth and all of its brokenness, chose to take their own lives in a pretty unpleasant manner. They believed that as they were doing this, the inner self would be liberated and they would be raptured up into an alien ship that was passing overhead where their new bodies awaited them. Now, uh, we, I'm sure, if asked, if we were confronted that that would say no, right? We'd say no to false teaching, to applesauce, Nikes. Uh, we would say no to them. But no one ever leads with that. No false teaching ever, that's not the pitch that they start off with. In fact, I think you may be surprised to think that a lot of what Heaven's Gate taught has been around for a really long time and sometimes even finds its way inside of the church. This morning, I want to talk to you about the importance of teaching, in particular, the importance of being aware of false teaching. You see, Christianity is certainly more than just a set of beliefs. It's more than just what I think in my head, but it's certainly no less than that. And the Bible mentions over and over that there will be things like false teachers and false teaching that will plague the church, plague the world, and have consequences for this life and the next. So let's look at in particular, one false teaching that was afflicting this church in 2 Thessalonians. So turn there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And before we do that this morning, though, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We come now to your word. I pray that as we do it, you would help us hear from you. You'd open our eyes, open our hearts. Lord, we pray uh, that for our church, but we pray for all the churches in St. Louis gathered in your name. We think of the ones around us, Lord, Salem Lutheran, John Paul II, Harvest, Bible Chapel up on the hill, Lord, Journey Bayless. We pray for all those churches that your word would go forward, that people would hear about a Savior who loves and cares for them. We ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Let's look at it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1-4. through 4, Paul writes this, As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. This is a particular tricky passage, but I want to break it up into three things. First, don't be deceived by false teaching that Christ's final coming has already occurred. Don't be deceived by false teaching because of two unfulfilled signs. And then finally, don't be deceived by false teaching by standing firm 
in holding to the truth. So let's look at how Paul would confront this false teaching. So he starts off by saying, listen, don't be deceived by thinking that the day of the Lord, that Jesus has already come. Now, what do he mean by that? What was the particular teaching that was going on? We're going to look at that. But what I think is interesting, though, is Paul describes the effect of the false teaching. I think that's important for us this morning. He says that people were teaching something and it was causing people to be shaken in their mind. The Greek word has to do with uh, a boat being kind of tossed to and fro, just out of control, back and forth, and alarmed. I think that's important because if you've been with us in 1 Thessalonians, you know that Paul said earlier that the point of good teaching is to strengthen and encourage. In 1 Thessalonians, the first letter he writes, he says this, And we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker for God in proclaiming the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you for the sake of your faith. That's what preaching, teaching should do. We should strengthen and encourage you. The opposite of that is leaving you scared, afraid, alarmed. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, we just teach you stuff that just, you know, sounds pretty and perfect and you never have any concerns and it's just all daisies. No, like there are hard things to talk about. There are challenging things to talk about. But the goal is that you would be strengthened and encouraged. So what's going on in this church? There seems to be some confusion about Jesus' second coming. Now, if you've been with us in this series, we talked about it in 1 Thessalonians because Paul talked about it. And what seems to have happened is that they're still confused or worse yet, these false teachers were taking that letter and kind of twisting it and teaching it the way they wanted to. What was particularly confusing about Jesus' second coming? Well, there's a couple of things. One, people thought it should have come quickly, right? Jesus said he was coming back. He's not back. We're still here. Uh, what's going on? Maybe it already happened. Maybe we just missed it. Or another kind of uh, lane of this teaching was that the resurrection was only going to be a spiritual thing. It was just going to be something that happened with your spirit. Now, why do I think that? Well, because if you, I know you're just all church history aficionados, so, you know, preaching to the choir here. But in the first century, there was some false teaching going around called Gnosticism. And it was really tied in, really close with Christianity. Like, so much so that a lot of times all the church leaders had to get together and make statements, you know, when we read the Apostles' Creed, that's part of what they came against was Gnosticism. They said, hey, this isn't true. This is Jesus. This is what the Bible teaches. So they were teaching this form of Gnosticism that, listen, this sounds very Heaven's Gate-ish. It really doesn't matter. Your body really doesn't matter. Think of your body's gross, your body's yucky, you sin with your body. God's not really interested in your body. What he's interested in is the inner you. That if you could just come to certain mental affirmations, you will be liberated from this yucky earth. 
everything inner and spiritual, good. Everything world, body, physical, yucky, gross. That's what they were teaching. So some of them were teaching that, hey, the resurrection isn't going to be a thing where Jesus comes back and gets us. It's this spiritual thing that happens. Now, why would I think that? Well, Paul talks about this teaching in a lot of other places. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you turn over there with me, I'm going to read it real quick. This is what he says. Avoid profane chatter, for it will lead people into more and more impiety. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Here we go, verse 18. Who have swerved from the truth by claiming that the resurrection has already taken place. They are upsetting the faith of some. So see, there it is again. Teaching that the resurrection has already taken place and it's upsetting people's faith. Now, as if I haven't already bored you to tears by talking about first century heresies and church councils, I'm going to introduce grammar into the equation. So uh, buckle up. This is an exciting Sunday morning. In verse 18, Paul says this. This is what's going on. They're teaching the resurrection has already taken place. It's the spiritual thing. And then he says in verse 19, but... Now, that word but is important because the word but contrasts two different ideas. It contrasts ideas that are different. Let me give you an example, right? You might say, I love to watch good TV, but my favorite show is Friends. Okay, so see those are in contrast. Good TV, Friends, okay? Nobody's booed me yet, so I guess not a lot of home, home crowd here with the anti-friend stance. Um, so they're contrasting two things, right? So Paul, let's go, back, let's go back to the Bible. In verse 18, Paul says, they're teaching that the resurrection, ha- it's already happened. It's the spiritual thing. But, verse 19, here's the contrast. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Let's look at the contrast. First, the Lord knows those who are his, okay? God is not Kevin McAllister's parents from Home Alone. He's not going to forget you, okay? He loves you. He cares for you. But most importantly for us this morning, the second one, let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. How is turning away from wickedness contrasting kind of a spiritual resurrection. Well, friends, if the resurrection is just a spiritual thing that happens, if it's just mental ascent in our minds that we're united with Christ, then what does it matter what we do with our bodies? Our bodies don't really matter. And in the ancient world, this was taken to two extremes that we still see today, right? People were teaching, hey, if you're saved, If you've mentally done it, then who cares? Sin all you want. God's going to take care of it. Don't worry about it. Or, hey, your sin's really bad, or your body, it's like horrible, it's gross. Who cares? Just only focus on the inner stuff. Friends, if that's what we think, if we think we're not one person, body and soul, if we think God's just interested in the inner us, if our bodies are just, you know, skin cars that drive around our consciousness from place to place, we get into a lot of trouble. 
That's why Paul says, turn away from wickedness. Stop doing things in your body that you shouldn't be doing because God cares about your body. That inner self and outer divide, like that affects us more than we think we do, more than we think we know. Have you ever talked to someone? I've been in ministry for many years now, and uh, you have conversations with people, and you know, I talk to people say, yeah, I'm a Christian, right? I believe I'm a Christian. They say it, inner self, yeah, I believe. But then in their bodies, they behave in ways that aren't Christian. But, and you might gently, lovingly say, hey, this, these things don't seem to match up. Like your, what you do with your body is kind of different than what you're confessing with your mind and your mouth. And they just say, well, I'm a Christian because I believe. I think we can see, this is in the church, right? So this affects us. But I think if we look out in culture, we can see other ways where like the outer self just doesn't really matter. What matters is the inner self. This puts us in dangerous places. Think about this. We talk a lot around church life about what? Reading your Bible and praying. You've, if you've been in church for more than a day, someone has probably talked to you about reading your Bible and praying. Very important things, of course. But what are they primarily? Mental things. Important, need to do it. But when's the last time anyone really talked to you about your body? When's the last time anyone said, hey, how are you loving God, loving your neighbor, serving your neighbor, witnessing to Christ, to the world around you with your body? We don't talk about it that way. In fact, think about online church. Now, we know some people can't be at church. I hear you. Uh, I get it. You have health needs, you have health problems, you can't get here. Completely understand that. God is gracious, God is merciful, like, of course. But for those of us who can be here, right, what is online church other than kind of like the ultimate divide between the inner and outer self, right? I don't need to take my body to church. I can just do church here. But when you say that, what are you saying? You're saying church is just mentally watching a sermon and okay, yeah, I agree with it. Good job. But do our bodies not matter? Yes. Is there something about worship that God has in place that he wants you to hear other people sing? Does it strengthen your faith when you see the person next to you? Maybe you know them, you know they're struggling in life and it's challenging and it's hard and yet they sing. Does that do something for you? Yes, I believe it does. Is there something holy and special about greeting one another and hugging and comforting one another as we gather together in worship? Yes. Do we have to physically take the sacraments? I say, yes, we do. Our bodies, we can't worship God without our bodies. We have to take our bodies to the worship gathering. We can't worship God without our bodies. So they matter they're important. They're part of God's good creation. He has a plan and a purpose for them. Now, I've been in ministry, like I said, for a while. No one's ever knocked on my door 
as I was reading this morning, or not this morning, as I was reading this week and putting the sermon together, you know, I was thinking like, yeah, nobody's ever come and asked me, hey, I thought I missed the rapture, or I thought I missed the second coming of Jesus. Like, I'm kind of worried. No one's ever come and asked me that. But in our culture and in our world, there is this great divide. Ideas have consequences that we are kind of two separate things, just a body and just an inner self. Our bodies constitute who we are, our identities. And our bodies facilitate, they enable us to worship God. So let me shift gears real fast. Second point. So Paul, he's talking about this false teaching and he does give them some hope. He does teach them something that can help them in this particular place. He says this, don't be deceived by false teaching because of two signs. So Paul knows uh, that they're disturbed by this false teaching, that they're afraid that they've missed it. And he gives them two signs about the coming of Jesus. First, He says that there will be a rebellion unless the rebellion comes first and the the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. So first there's going to be a great rebellion and then there's going to be the revealing of the lawless one or your Bible might say the man of lawlessness. Now, I gave you a little first century heresy teaching. I gave you a little grammar lesson. I'm not going to go into Middle Eastern apocalyptic literature, okay? I don't know if, I don't think I could sit through uh, one of that, let alone you. But I do think it's important mentioning because what Paul's doing is he is pulling a thread through scripture from Daniel chapters 11 through 13 and on to Jesus in Matthew 24. So real quick, let's look at this. The first sign that Paul says is that there's going to be a rebellion, some kind of Mass exodus from the people of God. People are going to leave the church, leave God. How that's going to happen, I don't know. The details, the numbers, the this or that, I don't know. But Jesus in Matthew 24 gives a little hint of what it might be. Matthew 24, Jesus says this, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the, here we go, Does this sound familiar? The increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. There's a connection between lawlessness and love. Do you see that? Lawlessness is when people kind of cast off objective reality. When people kind of say, hey, there's no objective truth. What you think is great. What I think is That's what Jesus is talking about. He talks about lawlessness. When that happens, people will get less loving. That makes sense. That makes all the sense in the world to me. And it might not be, you know, the place is going to turn into, you know, Mad Max. It could be that. But I think it's even more subtle than that. Let me explain it. Think about this. What's your definition of love? Do you have a definition of love? If someone knocked on your door and said, hey, you're a Christian, what is love? Probably important to have some kind of working definition. Thomas Aquinas said this, okay? Love's not an emotion. He said, to love is to will the good of another. That's what love is, to will the good of another. But what if 
there's no law, what if there's no objective reality about what is good? In a world in which everyone gets to define what is good, love grows cold. Love can't flourish in a world where we can't even agree on what is good. Hey, man, what's good for you? Great. That's awesome. Uh, not good for me. Uh, what's good for that group of people? Great. Well, that might not be good. If we can't sit down and say, no, this is what is good, then there's no way to love each other. And Jesus says, because of that, people's love will go cold. Now, this happens in pockets, happens throughout church history. Paul's going to talk about next week, Matt's going to talk about what is lawlessness the mystery of lawlessness already at work. So it's going to happen in little pockets throughout history. And apparently it's going to culminate in some kind of mass exodus. And it will be led by someone called the lawless one. It's what Paul's next sign is, that the revealing of the lawless one has not happened. Now, I'm not here to tell you who the lawless one will be come next week. Matt's going to explain it to you. Super simple. He's got it all figured out. He does not. If he did, I would be probably leave church here if he said he had it all figured out. But there will be some sort of leader who leads some sort of rebellion. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But here's what I know uh, is that Paul doesn't say who it is. <laughs> Paul doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it because it's, the Pope, 2,023 years later, right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, it's going to be that guy that got elected president uh, in 2015 years, right? He doesn't say that because that's not what I think he is trying to get them to do, nor should we. So be we weary of teaching who's like, hey, I know who the man of lawlessness is. Like, just don't give your time, your effort, your money to any of that stuff. Paul's recommendation for, okay, well, how do I not be deceived? Like, I don't want to be tricked. Brings us to our third point. And before I read it, I think the best way to illustrate it is, I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but uh, the Secret Service is the branch of the government who tracks down counterfeit bills. So their job is to find fake money uh, and take it out of circulation. Now, how do they do that? How do they find counterfeit money. Well, they don't spend hours and hours studying the latest counterfeit method that comes out. They spend hours and hours studying what the authentic dollar bill is. That way, when they find a fake one, they can identify it. And that's what Paul says. Don't run around trying to figure out who's this or who's that or this is what he's saying. He's saying, study the real thing. Hold firm. Why do I think that? Well, he says, don't be deceived by false teaching, by standing firm and holding tight. Where do I get that from? Well, I cheated a little bit. In 2 Thessalonians, you got to go all the way down to verse 15. It's kind of how he wraps up this chapter. He says, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. Paul says in verse 5, he says, like, don't you remember 
Do you not remember that I already told you these things when I was with you? Paul had a pattern. He would go to a place if he could. He would teach. And then he would leave and he would kind of write them letters to expound on what he had taught. And that's the challenge for you and I this morning is not to uh, run out and try to find the man of lawlessness or try to find when the second coming of Jesus is going to happen. It's to hold tight and to stand firm to what we know, what's been passed down to us. Paul calls it tradition. The church has been doing this for 2,023 years, and they've had a pretty good run of it. Now, I can maybe see the wheels turning in some of you. I'm not advocating blind uh, obedience to tradition and just, well, this is what we do, and we do what we do. We never have to look at it or think critically about it. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that there is a tradition. There is something that has been passed down through the Bible, through the church, all the way to us this morning. Now, different expressions of Christianity believe different things about this. But there's a few things that Paul mentions over and over in all of his writings. And I'm actually preaching on this passage, 2 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 15 in a couple of weeks. So I won't dig into all of them. But there's one thing that Paul mentions that's kind of part of that tradition. And he is going to encourage all of us. And I'm going to leave you with this, leave you a little bit of a cliffhanger, give you a little bit of homework this afternoon. What he, one thing that he kind of constantly reminds people of are the basic tenets of the gospel. Stop worrying about who the man of lawlessness is. Stop worrying about what the great rebellion is going to be. Focus on what you know. Focus on the gospel. Focus on what's been passed down to us. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read the beginning of it and listen to what Paul says. And I'm going to challenge you to read the rest of this chapter yourself. Listen to this sounds familiar. Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters. So here it is. Like, hey, I've got to remind you again of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn you received, in which you also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I receive, for I handed on to you as a first importance that in turn, that what I in turn had received. What follows there is a good summary of things like what is the gospel? He even talks about resurrection. So I want to challenge you today go home and read that. But what I want to end with this morning is a reminder. Is a reminder of who we are. I said ideas have consequences. So I'm going to read this one idea from a verse we've already read this morning. And then I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing a song as a reminder of great gospel truths. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we read it already, but it says this, Paul's firm, God's firm foundation stands, bearing this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. 
Ideas have consequences. As you sit in this room, God knows who are his. He knows you. He has not forgotten you. He has not left you. It's been a little bit of a strange week. Uh, I was uh, did a funeral this past Monday or this last week. It's all kind of running together. And then last night, my, my mom called me. My grandfather's kind of at the end of his life. It's about like he's about to pass away over the next couple of days. And this verse just reminds me of a great idea that has consequences. The Lord knows those who are his. And nothing can separate us from God's love, not even death itself. What an idea that the relationships that we have this morning will not end. Death will not end the relationships we have this morning. As brothers and sisters who join the church in the first service, as people who are Christians, our relationships will not end. God knows those who are his.